Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is Ben Bradford. Ben is the producer of a new audio series for Audible called Of the People. And it's really fascinating, and, and we got connected to him and, and wanted to have him on talk about it. So, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so so this is obviously the obvious first question, but um, what made you and Audible decide that it was a good idea to do an in-depth series on a presidential election from 50 years ago? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it seems pretty obscure, right? Particularly because this election on its surface, uh, this is the 1972 election, and it seems like just the most boring election of all time because it ends in a very famous blowout landslide. But underneath it is this really crazy, wild story of uh, assassinations and sabotage and personal betrayal and uh, all of those kinds of things. And, 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 and yeah, I'll just quickly say again, the series is called Of the People and it's on Audible. Uh, the reason I wanted to do it is because I am, like I think many people in this country, as I know you are, am fascinated by our polarization and that question of how did we get here? Um, was one that was really driving me. And so I was a uh, business reporter at the program Marketplace. And I just really had, and before that, I'd been a political reporter covering um, California politics for NPR stations in California. And I just, you know, this was sort of the driving question for me. And ultimately, I said, you know what? I'm, I got to go try to do this. I got to go see if I can look and, 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 uncover some answers on like, how did we get to where we are now? And it strangely led me back to this sort of overlooked blowout election. So what, why, so like, I think typically if you ask kind of people like me who've been in politics, what would be the two biggest things that really uh, usher that in? You, we would say technology, the TV in 1960 and then the internet, you know, in, in the late 90s, 2000. Um, tell me why your view is that it was the 1972 presidential race that really ushered in the polarization we face today. Sure. Yeah. So, and, and I don't discount um, either of those factors that, that you're that you're talking about. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, media plays a a big role in in hypercharging um, our our political environment, but. Uh, there are a few big changes that that we see occur and, and start to present themselves in the 1972 election. Um, you know, some of these things, it's, you know, history is complicated and uh, everything is tied to what's come before. Um, but, but the thing that I'm interested in is how are the divisions of the country articulated in our, in our politics? So it's not as simple as to say, well, this issue is important to voters, and so this issue is present in politics. And we see this all the time. Um, you know, there are plenty of things in uh, public opinion polls that are popular that uh, don't ever come up in politics. And so the 1972 election, there is a change, a fundamental change in our political system uh, and, and in the way that the political parties operate. Um, and I think that when we often talk about the Democrats and the Republicans or um, we talk about the uh, way that we choose candidates. We kind of lump it all together and think, that, you know, um, whether we're talking about the days of FDR or we're talking about today, that it's all kind of the same. But fundamentally, the political parties are shaped differently prior to 1972. Uh, we do not have a conservative party and a more liberal party. 
you know, the, 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 particularly not along social and cultural lines that, that we are so familiar with today. And the other big change that I explore in the series, and I'm not saying that this is the reason we are where we are today, but it certainly is a historical catalyst, is that there is a new way of choosing candidates in 1972, which is the presidential primaries. Uh, prior to 1972, uh, and I'm not advocating for this system either, just to be clear, uh, the way that candidates were chosen was a bunch of backroom bosses got together and said, who do we think is the most popular guy? Right. And then all of a sudden, so what, what led to that change? Was it sort of a revolt against the kind of backroom politics? Uh, yes. And who, yes. who and led that, that, that revolt? Yeah. So here's what happens, right? I mean, uh, you know, systems change when the current system is unacceptable. And for a lot of very good reasons, the old system that we had for choosing candidates was unacceptable. Uh, you had in 1968, uh, the Democratic Party at the time, this is the New Deal Democrats, and they are the dominant party. Uh, they're coming off an election that's a total blowout. Um, and something like two thirds of voters in the country uh, consider themselves uh, aligned with the Democratic Party. In 1968, you have the Vietnam War, you have tumult over uh, civil rights and police brutality and um, all kinds of other issues at home. And the Democratic Party fractures. And in particular, uh, it fractures over the Vietnam War. The Democratic Party bosses chooses their nominee, because again, the primaries, are, as we know them today, don't really exist yet. They, they choose their nominee, Vice President Hubert Humphrey. And Humphrey has not won a single primary race. And this is revealing, particularly to anti-war voters who had turned out so strongly, the primaries were kind of advisory. They were supposed to sort of inform the party bosses on you know, what the popular pick was. And so anti-war voters who turned out so strongly in the primaries were just outraged. There was a real fear that... Uh, Democratic voters had walked out in 1968 after Hubert Humphrey's uh, nomination, and there was a real fear that they might simply leave the party and go into a third party uh, behind one of the anti-war candidates. And so the Democratic Party leaders agree to make some changes to show voters that they're going to be responsive and um, that they're going to just take their feedback more into account. And this is like one of those small bureaucratic things that has all kinds of ripple effects, which is they create a commission to, to study how to make the nomination process more fair. And they pick this guy, this really kind of little known rural senator uh, from South Dakota. And they pick him because they know he has no chance of ever being a contender who could, um, you know, use these rules and use this commission to uh, to make something of himself. So he's a really good pick for that reason. And his name is George McGovern. And George what, McGovern, what are his of course, politics? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, so he is a liberal Democrat because uh, he is one of the leading anti-war Democrats and that he had been against the Vietnam War for a very long time. Uh, he has gone down in history as sort of a radical. And when you look back, that's not really the case. Uh, he is um, socially a, um, 
a guy that's interested in, in in equal rights. And for a lot of reasons, both I think political and because of his own beliefs, he aligns himself in 1972 with um, mostly with anti-war voters. But because those people are young and liberal and college educated as kind of their core, he also is aligning himself with the burgeoning women's movement and um, with uh, gay and lesbian people to a degree that no candidate had before. And this is really a watershed moment. But, you know, fiscally, uh, he's actually a fairly conservative guy. Uh, he's getting elected in South Dakota, which is a uh, probably at the time the most uh, conservative state in the country. So uh, there's a little bit of nuance to that. So it seems like everything you just said, the Democrats were imploding, right? They have yeah. this this issue that divided them completely on the Vietnam War, plus a lot of what LBJ did obviously divided the, the Southern Democrats from, from the rest yes. as well and civil rights and civil rights and everything else. Then you have this incredibly violent fractious convention in Chicago in 68. Um, and then someone like McGovern gets put in charge of creating an entirely new process. Given that the party seems like it was a total mess – why does Nixon not see that and and sort of realize that he's in pretty good shape and doesn't need to do something as stupid as Watergate? Because Nixon is paranoid as hell. Nixon is a pure political animal who will take any advantage he can get. And uh, he just thinks that, that this is the way that politics works and that everybody is doing it. Uh, and uh, I think I think that, you know, that, that he very much has that paranoid mindset. Um, so it doesn't occur to him not to do it. So in a way, if right, so you're almost describing as a sociopath in a way in that right and wrong doesn't even really occur to him. Uh, I'm sure you could ask this question all the time, but um, is he the closest parallel to Trump? And is, was he as crazy as we now think Trump is today? So Nixon is really interesting in that, you know, what we've seen from 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 Donald Trump is that he likes to pick issues that will whip up his base and pick sort of extreme issues that are designed to do that. Uh, Nixon was very willing in terms of rhetoric to pick up um, particularly the the themes of the segregationist Alabama governor, George Wallace. Uh, so to go back yeah. to 1968, uh, you have um, Hubert Humphrey running against Richard Nixon, but you have this third party candidate in George Wallace. And uh, Wallace is um, a uh, segregationist, most famous for standing in the schoolhouse door. And if you were looking for a parallel to Trump, I would say that George Wallace is probably a closer historical parallel in terms of the way that he talks to voters. Um, using kind of demagogic language. And if you listen to the series and you hear episode four, we have a whole episode about George Wallace, uh, the series of the people. And it, the parallels to that are striking. So Nixon picks up on that rhetoric because he wants to essentially box out George Wallace, as, as you kind of alluded to. Right. Um, you know, the Southern Democrats who are conservative, um, they are, you know, the leaders in the segregated South. And these are the same guys that presided over the segregated South. Right. And um, Nixon wants to get them who long time, you know, 100 years of Democratic voting to instead go to the Republican Party. And so he adopts a lot of George Wallace's rhetoric. However, unlike Trump, Nixon really looks to govern, just find whatever the most popular policy is 
So, you know, Nixon creates the EPA. Uh, Nixon, uh, his foreign policy is detente, where he's trying to find accommodation um, with the Soviet Union, even though he had been one of the biggest uh, Cold War hawks and red baiters uh, earlier in his career. Um, Nixon had been pro-civil rights, and um, his administration does some pro-civil rights things, even as he is um, really speaking Wallace's language. Uh, so I think that in that sense, he and Trump are uh, very different. Um, one thing where I think we could say that they are similar is um, that both are willing to use the instruments of office in ways that they have not typically been used. Right. So I was born after Watergate, but as someone who's sort of paid attention to politics my whole life, um, the, the I think the prevailing view of uh, people like me is that Nixon was despicable personally, ultimately stupid politically, but substantively, actually, uh, at least in the first term, a, a pretty good president. Uh, how did, in your view, his first term go? And, um, you know, wh wh what, what position was he in heading into the 72 election? You know what? Honestly, Nixon's first couple of years in office are a total catastrophe. And um, the parallels actually are interesting to me, just uh, uh, looking at the current administration, looking at the Biden administration, and there's a lot of focus right now on what will happen in this year's midterm elections. And Nixon heading into the midterm elections in 1970 was in a similar boat where he was very unpopular and the expectation was um, that there was going to be, in that, in that case, a wave of Democrats. And that turned out to be true. Um, the, the Republicans performed very poorly in the 1970 uh, race. However, as 1972 approaches, Nixon has had a string of successes where he is riding high. His approval rating is somewhere around 60% uh, at some points. Uh, he has uh, just visited China. Um, he has negotiated a nuclear treaty in Moscow. Um, people are talking about him as potentially one of the greatest presidents. So that, that is the view of him as the time. Um, just to your your question about how to view him, I will say that while researching this series, uh, it became apparent to me, who also did not live through Watergate, just how a lot of the fear, particularly during Watergate um, uh, and, and, and during the Watergate investigations and in the final days of Nixon, a lot of the fear about what he would do really mirrored um, the end of the Trump era, where you know, there, there, there were fears that Nixon might launch a nuclear attack on another country uh, just to take attention off of himself. And uh, his defense secretary says, you know, don't, don't let any order go through without checking with me first to his staff. Um, so some of that stuff uh, uh, really is the same. And I think we just forget because of how long ago it was. Um, so you clearly came into this project with some preconceived view of Nixon, good or bad, or in between. How has it changed now that you know so much more? Yeah, I, I, I will say I had sort of thought of Nixon as this, probably like you said, I, I think you know, kind of a bad person who had done, uh, you know, some some things that have really stood up legislatively over time, and he had done this one really horrible, scandalous thing in Watergate. 
my view after researching it, and, and Nixon is, is sort of a side character for a large extent during the series, but if you listen to the seventh episode of Up the People on Audible, um, you will hear during the 1968 election a, a scandal that is bigger than Watergate that uh, essentially tries to keep the U.S. in Vietnam in order for him to win election the first time. It is one of the most shocking things. I had no idea it existed. It's called the Chenault Affair. And it, it to me, it just speaks to the idea that this man was so amoral and um, so willing to do anything. And I was reading uh, one of his biographers, um, uh, Jonathan Farrell, uh, who, who was the first guy, to, I think, to really uncover the Chenault Affair. And I was reading his biography of Nixon. And even his own advisors were talking about it. This man had just no moral compass whatsoever. And I think that that is just, you know, really, really damaging beyond any particular, you know, legislative policy. Um, so uh, just give us actually a little more on the Chenault Affair, because I'm, I'm not even familiar. Oh, with sure. It, so yeah. What happened. Okay. Yeah. So the Chenault Affair, it is 1968. Uh, and... The Chenault Affair gets its name from um, this really interesting woman whose name is Anna Chenault, and she is the widow of a World War II hero. Anna Chenault is um, really interesting for the time, uh, as I mentioned in the series, because she is an immigrant. Um, she's originally from China, uh, who got out after World War II, and uh, she is a political power broker in Washington. She is a lobbyist. She has a bunch of money. Um, she funds, in particular, uh, anti-communist causes. She's, she's really motivated by the, the, the great famine in China that takes hold after, um, uh, uh, after the, the communist takeover of China. And so she, she's willing to basically fund um, particularly Republican causes uh, to, 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 to fight communism. So this makes her a, a big opponent of North Vietnam and a big supporter of the Vietnam War. With 1968, the election is underway, and she uh, had worked for Nixon. Anna Chenault had worked for Nixon in 1960, uh, and she starts working for him in 1968. She is uh, nominally just one of his boosters, collecting money, doing fundraising for him. In reality, she has a back channel. To the South Vietnamese government, right? So this is the American ally um, and uh, the government. How, how does she have that? Uh, well, she had contacts in South Vietnam um, before that is one of the reasons that she's uh, attractive to Nixon um, as somebody who is a kind of, you know, big anti-communist uh, there, you know, she is naturally a supporter of that regime and she had made those contacts. So, and he had other people with those contacts as well. Um, but, but the Chenault affair gets his name from Anna Chenault. So I just mentioned her. Um, but essentially what happens is in October of 1968, Lyndon Johnson makes this huge announcement, which is that the bombing is going to come to a halt. Uh, the bombing of uh, Vietnam is going to come to a halt because North and South Vietnam and the U.S. have agreed to come to the table for peace talks. And Nixon, of course, instantly thinks this is a ploy. This is, an, this is the original October surprise designed to... To, to seal the election for Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president, and make sure that Nixon isn't president. Anna Chenault and um, Nixon's other sort of 
people communicating secretly with South Vietnam are telling the South Vietnamese president and the South Vietnamese regime, do not come to the table for peace talks. Nixon will give you a better deal once he's elected, Uh, which, of course, is not true. And it turns out that the peace talks were real. Whether they would have resulted in anything, it's very hard to say. Um, But what we do know is that Lyndon Johnson, the president, knows about this. And there are incredible, because Johnson wiretapped all of, and taped, secretly taped all of his phone conversations. So you hear in the story, um, these incredible phone calls, uh, first between Johnson and Everett Dirksen, who is the um, uh, Republican leader in the Senate. Uh, he's the, the, the Mitch McConnell um, counterpart of his day. And uh, Dirksen and Johnson are friends. And um, and he's telling Everett Dirksen about, about this happening. And he says, this is treason, which it probably isn't, but it is very illegal. It's a violation probably of the Hatch Act, which says that, the Hatch Act, that says, yeah, um, Act. Yeah. Yeah, that says that he cannot, uh, that, that you know, private citizens can't be communicating with, uh, with foreign powers on behalf of the U.S. Uh, and then there's a conversation because Nixon knows that Johnson knows. And so he calls Johnson. And there's this kind of incredible phone call where he denies. He says, no, of course, any offer opportunity at peace, we should jump at. Um, but but we've, we know in Nixon's notes, this is what kind of was uncovered uh, only in the early 2000s, that we, we have uh, transcribed notes from Nixon saying, keep Anna Chenault on South Vietnam, you know, keep her talking to them. Um, so, so that's really the Chenault affair. It is this ploy by Nixon to prevent peace talks until after the election so that he can win the presidency. In yeah, and keeps the war going for what, at least another four years. And God knows oh, yeah, until yeah, 1975. Yeah. So, so presumably your, your opinion of Nixon did not improve. Uh, it did not improve because of the Chenault affair. No, it didn't. Yes. Um, so let's go back to McGovern. So sure. he's seen as a non-threat. That's why they put him in charge of this commission after 68. And then somebody ends up the nominee in 72. How does that happen? So McGovern is really interesting um, because he is a lot smarter than he's remembered for. And he really sets a blueprint that I would say candidates really follow today. Essentially, what happens is what's called the McGovern Commission. Um, it uh, This is the, 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 the commission the Democrats appoint to uh, uh, modify how nominees are selected by the Democratic Party. And ultimately, Republicans will adopt this as well. But um, the commission's results are actually very simple when you boil them down. It just says that voters have to decide who the delegates are. And for all kinds of kind of complicated reasons, the party ends up accepting this without, I think, the people in it really, really realizing the seismic implications of this. So instead of having backroom bosses choosing candidates and the kind of candidates they would choose were ones who they thought uh, in a general election would be broadly acceptable to voters. All of a sudden, it's voters of an individual party uh, that are going to uh, decide who the nominee is. And it's not all voters of just that party because all voters don't turn out. In fact, in primary elections, very few voters turn out. Like 30% is a really good turnout for a primary election. So McGovern, the longtime anti-war guy, does what I think you know all candidates look to do now, what has kind of proven to be the winning strategy in a primary, 
which is that he looks for the passionate voters who are so motivated and so emotional about the political system that they will turn out in these primary elections. And for him, it's the anti-war movement. And so he emerges as the first as the anti-war candidate. He, all the candidates at this point by 1972 are, are against the war, but McGovern has real credibility on this because he's been against and, it for almost and, 10 years. Yeah. When McGovern's creating this system, is he creating a system to give him the greatest chance of then winning a presidential primary, or he's just doing what he thinks is the best public policy and that leads to it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, he actually thought that being on the commission would hurt him politically because, in his words, you couldn't possibly please everybody. And that turns out to be actually very true in some ways. On the other hand, by turning it over to voters, I think he must have been aware of this, uh, it did give him a chance at the nomination. And he would not simply have not had that chance, right? Party leaders are never going to choose him as the nominee. And so um, I, I think that he certainly was aware of that. He knew he wanted to run for president. Uh, so I think it was probably a mix. I mean, I think that, that you see this a lot in politics where, um, you know, people have their, their beliefs and pursue their beliefs, but they also have their political ends and they pursue those as well. And a lot of times those things can be mixed together. Yeah. Um, you might be being, being a little generous, but yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so let's say that the McGovern commission never happened. Who would the bosses have likely picked in 72 instead? Well, you know, Ted Kennedy was the surefire guy until uh, Chappaquiddick. He right. drives a car into um, uh, off a narrow bridge into a pond, uh, and um, there is a, a woman in the car uh, who, who who's drowned and who dies, um, Mary Jo Kopechny. And so Kennedy is out. And the other major candidate uh, who would have been the guy is Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine. And he had been the vice presidential pick in um, 1968. And he'd been kind of unknown then. And um, But Muskie is sort of the one guy out of 1968, this very divisive and violent year, who comes out politically looking pretty good. Uh, he sounds like a unifying candidate. He is... Um, able to appeal broadly across the party. Uh, he doesn't express any really strongly held views. He, his main push is at a time at, at the time on an important issue that I would say is not it's not polarized in the way it is today, which is um, on the environment. He is the architect of the Clean Air Act. Um, and so uh, Ed Muskie really starts out in, in before people understand that the primary system has changed things, Ed Muskie starts out as the guy. And in lieu of the primaries, he probably is the guy. So 72, McGovern uh, creates this new commission, creates this new system. It actually works out in his advantage. He becomes the nominee. He gets wiped out. Um, but from there, how does the primary become the predominant mode of really choosing our elected officials. And what was gerrymandering like then um, compared to how it is now? Yeah, well, I, I should say two things. Um, one is that that primaries were already used to choose candidates below the presidency. Um, so they had sort of started to come into vogue, uh, particularly in the early 20th century, uh, to choose members of Congress and, um, you know, uh, state political leaders. So this is really affecting the presidential race. And once the rules are enshrined, there are adjustments to them. But um, from 1972 onward, um, and, and for 1976, 
for the Republican Party. Uh, it, it's really voters choosing the candidates. Um, there is another change when you talk about gerrymandering. There is another really seismic change that comes out of 1972, and and, and the primaries are kind of the catalyst for it. But you know, historically, I don't know whether it would it, it probably would have happened somehow anyway. But that's the the realignment of the parties. Um, so the idea that we have a conservative party and we have a more liberal party, and there's sort of this gulf in between them. Um, there's all kinds of huge, complicated reasons for that, but a really big, simple one, which we've alluded to earlier, is um, that the South uh, goes firmly into the Republican column, where it had firm, been firmly in the Democratic column before. Um, so when we talk about gerrymandering, and when we talk about sort of emotional appeals, uh, single issues, wedge issues, all of those kinds of things in politics, those are all much, much more difficult when the parties are not uh, also ideological. When you have partisanship and you have ideology and those things are not you know, a, a perfect one-to-one -one connection. Uh, it is much harder to gerrymander um, a, a district if you know, you know that there are liberal and conservative voters who tend to vote for the Democrat, and there are liberal and conservative voters who tend to vote for the Republican. Um, now, the parties had were much more kind of machine run, so you had other effects from that that could make um, that could make the parties, you know, that it could give strongholds to to different. Um, to different parties, so like South Dakota is 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 firmly Republican, with the exception of McGovern, and uh, you know Chicago is just controlled by uh, Mayor Richard Daley, the Democratic Party boss. Uh, but 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 gerrymandering for for a variety of reasons. But one, of course, is also technology um, is just not in nearly as uh, sophisticated of a stage at the time. Right. So that all makes sense. So, so let me throw two two tech questions at you to wrap up. Sure. One is, um, so, uh, you know, based on my work directly in government and politics, um, what I learned, as I think everybody learns, is every policy output is the result of a political input. And when you live in a world where every district is gerrymandered and primary turnout, you know, 30, as you said, is generous, typically it's more like 10 to 20 percent. And those tend to be the most ideological voters. By definition, people who are being elected are being told, if you want to stay in office, you have to stay pure. We don't want you compromising or working with anyone else because that's not the mentality of people who show up in the primaries. And as a result, we have this extreme polarization that just keeps getting worse and worse and we can't solve any of our problems. Um, so I've been trying for the last couple of years to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phone over the blockchain um, with the thesis of, you know, no matter how many Beyonce concerts we have to rock the vote, you know, you're never going to get primary turnout way above where it is today um, if people have to show up on a random Tuesday and wait in line somewhere. And by the way, f forget our presidential election, you know, city council, state senate, things like that. Um, but uh, what I learned when I ran all the campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing is that it, when you let people get engaged politically from their phone, they're far more likely to do so, right? So a couple of million people uh, on behalf of Uber emailed, tweeted, texted, in some way told their elected officials, I want this thing. And as a result, we won and beat an industry in taxi that at the time was really powerful because we leveraged technology properly. So my view has been if people could vote securely on their phone, um, especially in primaries, turnout goes from 12% to 
40, 50 percent. And by definition, the increased voters move things more to the middle. And that sends different uh, messages to the politicians, creates different incentives, different inputs, which then leads to outputs that are more based on on consensus and getting things done. So we have uh, funded elections in seven different states where people have voted on their phones, either deployed military people with disabilities uh, over the blockchain and are now building our own mobile voting technology, which we're going to give away uh, open source to anyone who wants it. So based on all the research and work you've done and everything that you've learned, am I right? Is this the right path or, or am I missing something? You know, I, I, I would say that in general, right, we, we are, are sort of principal as, uh, uh, as, as the United States of America is that we want voters to decide elections. And so therefore the most voters that we get to, 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 to cast ballots in each election, that that is a civic good. Um, I know that certainly that was, um, you know, a, a push in California when um, I was a, a state house reporter. Um, you know, a question, and I'm sure you have an answer for it. Um, so I, maybe maybe I can just ask you the question yeah, yeah, on please. this. Is uh, you know, I, I know just from from covering um, voting and elections that uh, the major cybersecurity concern. I know, I know, you know what I'm going to say here uh, yeah. is essentially that without a paper trail. That elections are much easier um, to, to to hack or to to meddle with, and so you know, uh, sort of the, the the good government cybersecurity people that that I would talk to back when I was a California State House reporter would say, you always need um, a, an election a, a ballot machine that gives a printout to the voter and gives another duplicate printout to um, uh, to the government, so that there is a paper trail. Uh, and if there is any meddling on the electronic side, we can know about it. Right. Uh, how yeah. how do you deal with that? So two things. So one is, and this has been you know a variety of variation on what the cybersecurity community. Some people have been saying um, so far. Although I should say that of the 21 mobile voting elections that have happened so far, they've all been audited independently by the National Cybersecurity Center and all come back clean. But nonetheless. Um, that's why we're building our own technology was to really answer that question. Uh, there's two pieces to it. One is you need end-to-end -end encryption um, just so that you are basically blocking off the ability for anyone to tamper with the process You know, at any point, whether it's you, know, you accessing the ballot on your phone or being transmitted over the blockchain back to the election office or how it's stored once it gets there or anything else. Um, and two is creating, you can create a paper version of it. So in the elections we've done to date, um, when the ballot would hit the Secretary of State's office or election director or wherever it was, um, they could print out and they did print out a paper copy. And so you still had a paper trail uh, of who voted. Uh, the voters are still able to look at a PDF and verify that's exactly what they want. Um, and then you still have the redundancy of paper, um, but it's it doesn't prevent you from dramatically increasing turnout by making voting more accessible. But with that said, you know, I think most of the cyber community is, is well-intentioned, even if incredibly naive about uh, how politics actually work. Um, but yeah, I think everyone, you know, we'll, we'll build this technology. That's not that hard to do as long as you have enough money. Um, but, but everyone in power on both sides who likes things the way they are, and that includes unions and lobbying groups and trade groups and everyone else, um, is going to scream cybersecurity up and down because the last thing they want is primary turnout going from 12% to 50%. Yeah. You know, I, I will say, I do think that, um, in terms of, 
intention and pushes, you know, again, just, I, I'll just go back to my, my California experience, you yeah. know, in general, the sort of, um, particularly on the democratic side, right. The push for, um, all male ballots, right. Um, that, mm-hmm. that, that was a big push. And I, you know, I, I think that, that, that unions, for instance, um, who are, who are big lobby in, in California have generally felt that that would be helpful to them. Although on the other side of it, you know, one year, one reason that, um, some local places and uh, uh, and some states will have off-year elections, right, where they have elections for for local or state office in an odd year. Typically, yeah. that has been that has been specifically because uh, groups thought it was an advantage to have even lower turnout than we already have. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's you know that that there's there's definitely um, uh, some of that. It just it's you know it's just complicated in terms of what people see as their interests. For sure, um, yeah. yeah. And look, I think you know the union specifically, right the the short answer for them is yes if you have higher turnout and you believe in places like california that will elect more democrats that will enable you to lobby better for your policies however at the same time the only reason that 99 percent of politicians on the left or democratic side take union seriously is because they believe the union could have some actual impact on their election itself a lot easier to have an impact on an election when it's low turnout than when it's when it's high turnout um but let me throw this last theory at you sure uh which is a little crazy but but maybe you'll go for it which is <laughs> uh, as we've been talking i would argue that the 1972 presidential election in many ways is directly responsible for what ultimately became cryptocurrency um, because the crypto effectively is uh, the manifestation of a lack of trust in central institutions, in government, in media, in the church, on Wall Street, higher ed, all of that. And it was really Vietnam and Watergate to me, where, where that shift really started occurring normatively and people started saying, you know, I just don't trust any of the institutions, ultimately once the technology became available, leading people to say, I would rather throw in my lot with like-minded people um, who see the world that way that I do, even if I have no idea who they actually are, um, than to trust a, a central bank or government. Um, and, and so in some ways, that same polarization that you talk about and, and that those issues that were so divisive and so awful, um, to, to me, is kind of what led to where we are now on crypto. Is, is that fair to say, or do you think that's crazy? Uh, I don't know whether it led to crypto or not. I think that's that that's fascinating, and uh, I, I definitely agree with you that we can trace uh, a loss of public trust in institutions to the 1970s. Vietnam and Watergate uh, fundamentally change what people view from their government. Um, over the course of the remainder of the 70s, uh, stagflation and all kinds of um, economic changes uh, continue to sort of push that forward. And at the same time, what we've been talking about politically, this this change to the political parties, the way in which we have a, uh, a political realignment, a, a conservative party, a more liberal party, candidates who are incentivized to appeal more toward the edges, the introduction of emotional wedge issues. The other thing that is introduced is uh, what's called negative polarization, which is a term I know you're familiar with, uh, but just to sum up, it means... Um, Essentially, how much do people not like their own party, but how much do they dislike people of the other party? And I think this is sort of the third factor in public distrust, which is that that we are at a point now where, um, you know, sixty percent of people, I think, in, in, in the latest polls, uh, tend to to strongly dislike uh, the other party. 
And how can you trust if you think that people of the other party are specifically out to get you and to destroy the country? How, how can you how can you trust them in government? Right. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. And on that depressing note, we'll uh, wrap <laughs> it up. But Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's a great podcast series. Congratulations on it. It's called Of the People. It's on Audible. Uh, check it out. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great.